She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Cold Check the Night Stalker. Episode 15. Chopper. In this episode, there's no sense burying the lead because Kolchek wouldn't. A headless motorcyclist is driving around Chicago decapitating people with a sword. And Kolchek needs to figure out what's going on without losing his head. The teleplay is by Steve Fisher and David Chase. The story is by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. The episode was directed by Bruce Kessler. And its original air date was Friday, January 31st. 1975 at 8 p.m. Well, welcome back after a long vacation from Kolchek, <laughs> at least for us, because yeah. we haven't recorded a Kolchek episode in like 12 weeks. It's been crazy. Yeah, so, it's been a while. So it's nice yeah. to get back to some Kolchek action. Yeah. For you lovely listeners, you're like, what are they talking about? Yeah. The magic of podcasting. Yep. Anyway. So, uh, does the name Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale mean anything to you, Tori? It's very familiar. So, especially Zemeckis. Like, I feel like that is definitely a name I should know from somewhere. Yeah. So, they are mostly a team. I think, I don't, I don't want to say for sure. I think they've always worked together. Kind of like a little, like, uh, you know, Morgan and Wong action. Which then they split up. But maybe they did too. Zemeckis and Gale. Anyway, back to the future. Okay. Yeah. This yeah. was the first thing I believe that they ever sold in like Hollywood. Nice. So, yeah. So we have a lot of like David Chase created Sopranos, right? This was like his first job, right? He basically worked as story editor on almost every single episode. But, like this was his first job in Hollywood. We got Robert Zemeckis doing like his first like sold story on Kolchak too. So yeah, Kolchak. Nice. That's really cool. Yeah. I haven't seen Back to the Future in a really long time. That's another movie I need to watch again. Me neither. And I've honestly never seen any of them except for the first one. Oh, and I really s- don't have any desire to see any of them except for the first one. I've honestly. seen, I can't remember so. if there's two or three. I think there's three because one, they go back to like the Old West or something. I think that's the, uh, I think that's the third one, I think. Yeah. And I, I remember like me and my brothers watched them all. We rented them on VHS and we definitely have seen them all. It's just been a really long time since I've seen any yeah. of them. I mean, and, I don't know if I'm wrong. People are yelling at me right now, but I mean, at the end of the first one, right. They're going, you know, back to the future because their kids have like done crazy stuff. And that's where we get like the lace up Nikes and like the hoverboards. I mean, again, I've never seen it, but like, you know, all this stuff because you see it in pop culture all the time. Oh, you mean the second one? Yeah, the second one. Yeah. yeah. So I think the second one is the future. The third one is the past. Yeah, I think the third one so, is the Wild West one. Yeah, which I think, I think Doc Brown doesn't come back. I think he stays because he falls in love with the woman there. I think that sounds no. right. Again, it's been a really, really long time. So yeah. that's something I'll have to. Well, again, I've never seen it. So I can be making shit up. No one knows. So <laughs> well, I mean, it's maybe... not that I didn't like the first movie. I did. I just, this other two didn't seem to like do it for me. So. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, when I was a kid, when we go, we would go to like rent movies and stuff, it was like your options were very limited. So it's like, what are the new movies this week? Okay, let's watch those. You know, it wasn't like, and then I think they had some TV marathons too, where they would have like the three movies on a Saturday or something. This is weird because his girlfriend in the first one, her name is Jennifer Barker. And I actually went to high school with a girl named Jennifer Barker. Huh. 
and that movie came out when I was like 15. So it was interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so Kolchak, back to Kolchak. <laughs> Kolchak. Uh, let's go back to 1975. We have the opening credit sequence that we always have. I feel like I should say it again because it's been so long. But like again, it hasn't been long for you guys who are listening. It's just been long for us. So I know it. I've seen it. And then when we get through that, we get into Kolchak sitting at his desk, and we get his little monologue that he does in the beginning. And he says, the teenage, this is the weirdest of the openings, I think, personally for me. Anyway, the teenage years, 16 candles, fervent passions, aimless joy rides, and the forbidden taste of beer. A time the world allows for sowing one's wild oats. But for some individuals I came to know, in the summer of their discontent, it had been the time when they had sown the seeds of their own destruction. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Little, little dramatic. I mean, it's not it's, wrong. It's Kolchak. He's a newspaper writer. Yes. Got to make good copy. Well, technically, newspaper writers are not supposed to do that. But anyway, <laughs> maybe it was different. Listen. Well, it depends on what kind of newspaper you're reading, Tori. That's true. That is incredibly true. Yes. So we were in the Chicago outskirts, April 5th, Cook County Warehouse and Impound Yard. A large cemetery has been sold to developers planning to build some condominiums. So all the residents of the cemetery needed to be moved yeah and that's not gonna that's not gonna end up with like haunted condos or anything at all oh pro- no or like swimming pools full of like dead bodies and stuff no probably not i don't think mm-hmm. that's gonna happen it won't cause problems anyhow no cemeteries like do puppet, get moved from puppets time to time. trying to strangle your kids later and trees jumping out at them and yeah, yeah none, none of that yeah none of that crazy stuff never 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 <laughs> so we see a forklift and it's moving coffins through the warehouse and we hear that for the most part, despite the controversy and the protest, things actually went kind of smoothly. Like, I guess, you know, people were like, hey, you can't do that, but it didn't go too bad. And so the forklift is carrying several coffins. One is, they're like all different, right? And one's basically just like a wooden crate, essentially, like a long wooden crate. But the side of it is like all rotted away and busted. And like, this is kind of like dangling there, like loose by one nail. And we hear that there were a few discrepancies here and there. But one small discrepancy took seed and bloomed into a flower of evil. So we're getting Kolchak's narration mixed with me describing the scene. So anyway, as the forklift is driving, a stack of coffins scrapes the side of a bunch of barrels. And that jostling results in this metal bucket canister looking thing falling out of the damaged coffin and like rolling away unnoticed by the forklift driver. Mm-hmm. I don't know what would go in a head sized metal bucket out of a coffin. But, you know, whatever. I don't know. Right? People get buried with all kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So then it's 1045 p.m. A widow, Mrs. Rita Baker, 62, suffered from insomnia, but had finally managed to fall asleep when she was awakened by the thunderous roars of a revving motorcycle. So she goes outside and the sounds are so loud. And they sound like they're coming from the closed garage. And then suddenly, a spectral motorcyclist bursts through the closed garage door. <sighs> speeds off into the night, leaving the door unscathed. Like, the door's not broken. Like, he just, like, whoo, came through the door, took off. And the Phantom Rider was not wearing a helmet. But they didn't need to because they didn't have a head. <gasps> Ooh. Yeah. 
When the police arrived, they confirmed the theft of a 1956 BSA motorcycle that had been in the garage. What they didn't confirm was how the rusted out 20-year-old motorcycle, long since drained of gasoline, had managed to roar out into the night. Mm. Yeah. In Kolchak's narration, he does mention that on the night of February 5th, she had managed to doze off, which is an obvious incongruity because in the previous scene, he says it takes place on April 5th. And in the next scene, he's going to say it's April 6th. So obviously, things are <laughs> script-wise going right. Someone, you know, typed a two instead of a four maybe, or who knows. So yeah, yeah so there's some date mistakes that's happened before. Tell me, that's where Chris Carter got the idea to just mess the dates up on the X-Files. He was like, wow, Kolchak <laughs> did that. I should do that too. I don't think it's intentional in either case. I think it's a thing that happens when you have a lot of stuff going on. Well, I don't think Kolchak did it intentionally. I'm just joking. That I know, I, I know. That's why that's why the X Files is all messed up because Chris Carter was like, "Well, Kolchak did it, so I'm going to do it too." <laughs> so then it's April 6th, and we're near the Great Lakes Naval Station, and Joseph Morton, who's 36, pulls his cab for the Domino Taxi Cab Company into the garage. And he's parking and the attendant logs his time. Morton might have appreciated an explanation for the previous night's events at Miss Baker's garage and possibly could have provided some clues to that if he survived long enough to have heard about it. Ooh, foreshadowing a little there. Yeah. So Morton gets out of his cab and we kind of hear this motorcycle roaring in the background. And then this headless rider zooms through the garage directly towards him carrying a katana. And it like speeds past Morton and then it spins around and it comes back and the attendant comes out and tells him to run, which shit run. (laughs) And then on the second pass, the writer swipes the sword across Morton's back and he tumbles into a pile of seat cushions. And then Morton gets up and he like runs and he rolls over the front of his cab to dodge the headless motorcyclist sword. But the headless motorcyclist is tenacious. He's not giving up. Oh. Yeah, as he gets up, the rider's already spun around and he's heading directly toward him and he's got a sword raised and the shot cuts to the attendant and we see his reaction as Morton's head is lobbed off by the headless motorcycle rider. <gasps> and then he drives away. Oh. Yeah. Wow. And then yeah. we have a commercial because they do a commercial rider for the teaser usually, so. Yeah, so we split the teaser, I just realized. We do not spend normally something we do, but this teaser seemed like it had many scenes in it. So Yeah, it's pretty yeah, long. It. Yeah, it has like three separate scenes, I think. Yeah, so yeah. So we're going to talk about this, right? Let's get it out of the way. Much like we did in the episode.com in the X-Files. So the makeup, we're going to call it makeup, even though it's more of a costume thing. The makeup effect for the headless motorcyclist is awful. It's what you would expect it would be. Like if you bought yourself a Halloween costume like at the cheapest Halloween costume store ever and we're going as a headless person, you can imagine what it looks like, right? It's Mm -hmm. like you've got giant shoulders and you're looking through the chest, right? That's what it looks like. It is the basic premise for the episode, though, so you can't really easily dismiss it. So we're just going to get that out of the way. Like, it's not a great costume. It doesn't look great. Yeah, it's 1975, but they probably could have done something a little bit better. Though, unlike Dodd-Com, we do probably see this for like maybe like a total of like two minutes throughout the whole episode. So it's not like Dodd-Com where we had to just keep seeing it through the whole episode. But still, yeah. it's not great. It, no, and it, it keeps it, coming it can, back. It definitely can take you out. Yeah, and it's it's 
it's not just like the shoulders are really high where the head is. And like, there's this obvious gap in the shirt, quote unquote, with like black mesh where you can tell the person like, you know, is looking out. Yeah. Material science probably wasn't great in 1975. So yeah. And there's also this weird like neck bone sticking out of the top. It's like this little like plastic nub at the top. Well, I mean, there would be, I mean, right. right, I know, but it just, it looks yeah. yeah, it just looks really funky. So yeah, it definitely looked like if you went to Spirit Halloween and were like, give me your cheapest headless horseman costume, this is what you would get. Yeah. So, which I mean, it is what it is. It's not the end of the world. It's just Yeah, and like I said, we actually don't see it that often. So Yeah, but it's still not great. So under the title and credits, we get Kolchek is driving, and then we hear over his police scanner of a 219 at Domino Cab Company. So I don't know what a 219 is, but it doesn't sound good. And Kolchak steps on the gas and commits several moving violations in the process. I think he like makes a left-hand turn from like the right lane and just, yeah, a lot of stuff. So when he arrives, the body's already gone and several officers are interviewing the attendant in his office. And another group are besides Morton's cab and they're measuring the body outline and photographing the scene. So Kolchak goes over there and he starts snapping some photos of his own. And the body outline is drawn with white chalk over several tire tracks. And strangely, the body outline doesn't seem to have a head. Tori kind of told us already that he got his head lopped off, but we technically don't know that. I mean, I, you could guess it, right? <laughs> but can, I mean, you know. You can extrapolate certain facts and guess He could have just killed the guy with us. I mean, he swiped his back, right? So he could have just like, ooh, you know. Yeah, he could have run him through. Cleaved him or something, but yeah. yeah. But that is not the case. He did lob no. off his head. Also, the writer doesn't have a head, so it's kind of what you would expect, right? Doesn't have yeah. Head. I mean, that's what the headless horseman does, right? He collects heads. This guy that's is true. similar. Yeah. So as Kolchak is taking his photos, one of the plainclothes cops interviewing the attendant looks over and shakes his head dismissively. So he obviously doesn't like Kolchak. And before he completely turns back to the attendant, Kolchak catches sight of him. And then so Kolchak, like, sir, typically, like, starts winding his camera and he, like, pulls the film out and like stuffs it in his pocket before he walks over to the attendance office. So they obviously know each other. And then the plainclothes cop comes out and he stops Kolchak and it's like, who gave you permission to come into this garage? And then Kolchak does a little performative speech about the founding fathers and the constitution and the freedom of the press. And then he says, he heard the call on the radio and he asks like the Lieutenant for details and he's corrected because he says that he is captain Jonas, now he was made captain shortly before Christmas, and grabs Kolchak by the arm and begins walking him out. He says, I put Ruben Estevez in the joint for 30. No chance of parole. As Kolchak is like sarcastically like, oh, congratulations. And then like pulls himself free. And Jonas tells him how things are going to be different now that he's in charge. He watched how his predecessors let the press get away with their constant interference. Not anymore. For starters, no pictures until he says so. And so he demands Kolchak's film. And like Kolchak is like, no, you can't have my film. And like, you know, all the freedom of the press stuff. But then he finally like gives in and he goes to open his camera. And he's like, oh, I forgot to load my camera. Jonas laughs and like, you're so incompetent. Right. And then Kolchak is really working. because he's like, looks all super distraught. It's like, oh, I can't believe I did it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, like, the whole, oh, I forgot to load my camera was a brilliant move on Kolchak's part. And it's funny, too, because he plays kind of the, well, I'm an older dude, so I forget things. He kind of like plays that up. It was just yeah. brilliant because he knew the guy was going to take his film. So smart. Yeah, yeah very well, he smart. does a good job with that one. 
So then Kolchak overhears the attendant say something about someone's head being gone. And Kolchak asks Jonas if the victim was beheaded. And Jonas tells Kolchak not to mess with him. He's the youngest captain on the force and he's going to be the best. So he doesn't need Kolchak interfering in his business. And Kolchak waves it off and he asks if the perpetrator rode a motorcycle. And Jonas is like, no comment. And Kolchak asks if they got a make on it, to which Jonas doesn't answer. But he looks past Kolchak to a tow truck that's about to pull away with Kolchak's Mustang. (sighs) And... Kolchak's like, huh? He's like, the founding fathers didn't give you permission to park outside a crime scene. So Kolchak is like ready to swear. And he like runs off after the tow truck as it drives away with his car and like hops on the side of it. And Jonas smirks after him because, you know, he had his car towed to get rid of him. He is kind of a jerk. Yeah. And Captain Jonas is played by Larry Linville, who most people probably know as Frank Burns from MASH. He also played the doctor in the Night Stalker, the original Kolchak movie. So he has been in Kolchak before, but not as this character. Okay, cool. Yeah. So at the morgue, Kolchak tries to get information from the attendant, Neil. And Neil wants to become a beautician, and so he requests a donation for his scholarship fund. And Kolchak asks if Morton was beheaded. And Neil says he can see for himself and he pulls out Morton's slab and he lifts the sheet for Kolchak. And Neil says, in his expert opinion, it was done with a sword. And Kolchak box and he's like, no, it looks like a surgical incision. And Neil agrees that it's an incredibly clean cut, better than some of the work they do even. And Kolchak's like, Haha, yeah, well, that's not saying much. So <laughs> Kolchak, don't antagonize the guy who's giving you help. Just don't do yeah, that. Yeah, he gave him money. He can say some stuff. It's fine. That's true. He did pay him. And then he asks Kolchak if he wants to see Morton's bulletproof vest. And Kolchak is like, why would he have a bulletproof vest? He was a cab driver. So Neil goes over to the cabinet of personal effects and pulls out a vest. And the back of it is slashed almost completely through. And then Neil gives Kolchak some suggestions on how to cut and style his hair and some conditioning tips. And then he even offers to do Kolchak's hair himself. But Kolchak turns him down and leaves. And as he's leaving, he grabs his donation back out of Neil's scholarship fund. So he takes his money back. So. Yeah. This is the second time that in a row where he's able to like to retrieve his donation when he like leaves the place. So Yeah. Because he Pretty. did it the little witch's coven, remember? He like we ran out after the pen was flying around in the air. He's like, whoa. <laughs> also, I can't say why, but Neil gives me like Frohickey vibes. I'm not sure. Huh. I think it might be his eyes. He's okay. also he's also kind of short. He is definitely shorter than Kolchak. He's not like Frohickey short, but he is also shorter. So yeah, I, don't know. I just kind of I was just kind of getting that vibe from him, but I'm not sure why. Huh. But doesn't look like him. Doesn't wear glasses. So even like the eye thing seemed weird because like Frohickey wears glasses. But yeah, yeah. So then Kolchak is at a motorcycle dealer, and the owner, Herb Bresson, returns from. He had to obviously take care of something to resume. So they've obviously been talking before we come in. And then he had to leave, and now he comes back. He is totally trying to sell Kolchak a motorcycle. Uh-huh. But Kolchak steers the conversation back to the photo of a tire track and, like, what type of motorcycle it would belong to. Preston looks, and he's like, oh, it's a Johansson Road Monarch, 516 by 18. And then he takes Kolchak over to a German-made motorcycle, and he's like, this motorcycle would be perfect for a German. It's nice, conservative, good looks, good handling, perfect for someone like you. And Kolchak is not interested, right? He's like trying to get back to the what we're talking about. 
Kolchak asks him what kind of bike would have those tires. Bresson stops him and he says, look, you're a reporter. And so it is your job to ask questions. I'm a motorcycle dealer. So it is my job to try to sell you a motorcycle. And Kolchak is like, okay, that's fine. But like, I just need for you to answer these questions first, please. So Bresson relents and he says that those tires wouldn't have been made since the 1950s. They were on the BSAs and were popular with the bike gangs. Kolchak says there's no way the tracks in this photo are from a 20-year-old tire. And Bresson agrees. He's like, that tire looks cherry. But it doesn't change the facts. They haven't been made for 20 years. And then he's saying how like the Jokers and the Bishops were the two local outlaw gangs that were around. And then Bresson shows Kolchak a Japanese bike. But as he's talking about the bike, he starts to get a flashback and like has to stop. And he's talking about how like the manufacturer made like fighter plane engines in World War II. And he was shot down by a Japanese fighter plane. Um, and he spent like a year in the VA. And so he's dealt with some stuff. And But then he's like, but they make damn good bikes. He's like banging on the seat as he says it. <laughs> Kolchak kind of takes that as his cue to leave. And then says like, yeah, maybe I'll come back and you can try and sell me a motorcycle. So <laughs> yeah, Kolchak is not coming back. He's not buying a motorcycle. <laughs> Not, although I do, I mean, I do get it. And it's it's kind of a funny, it's meant to be, you know, play because salesmen are always salesmen kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's supposed to be funny. But yeah, it's good. Well, pretty much everyone Kolchak goes to like is like, you need to give me some money. Like one way or another, you need to give me some money. Like yeah, a donation or you need to buy something or, you know, whatever. So Capitalism, man. Capitalism. Capitalism. So Herb Bresson is played by Jim Backus, who's well known for playing Thurston Howell III on Gilligan's Island. He was also the voice of Mr. Magoo in pretty much every Mr. Magoo thing up until like, I don't know, the 80s or something. Like he was in a bunch of shorts and then he was in. I think up until he died. I probably. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, he was there was a show called Mr. Magoo and then the famous adventures of Mr. Magoo. And then what's and new? Then Mr. Mr. Magoo, Magoo Christmas special where he's Ebenezer Scrooge. Yes. Yeah, Christmas that was special. all. So that was and it's all actually him. a musical. There's like songs. Yeah, I think I've seen so. that, actually. In addition, he appeared on many other things. Those are the two things he's most known for, but he was on The Brady Bunch, I Dream of Jeannie, just a bunch of things. So Yeah, he was in Bewitched. He was in you know, kind of stuff. Yeah, he was it's weird because seeing him here, like I, I mainly think of him as Mr. Magoo, just because that's me. I think of him as the voice of Mr. Magoo. But when I think of him as Thurston Howell, I think of him as like a shorter, dumpier dude. But yet, like in this, he is not short and dumpy. He's like, kind of almost like built a little bit like he's got some he's got like a kind of like a v action going on could be the cut of his suit i don't know but he looks like tall and yeah so. yeah i don't know maybe it's just the clothes they put thurston in i have no idea Who yeah knows? i don't know <laughs> so then it's april 6th at 8 45 p.m and stud spake whose real name is henry barlow spake is working as a line repairman and he's up on a telephone pole and he calls, he uses one of those phones that's up on the old-timey telephone poles. I don't know if they still have those. They might still have the phones up there. Yeah, I'm not uh, sure if it's one that's up there, if it's one, because I know I've seen them, too, where you can, like, just, you, it's like a portable one, and you tap it oh, into Oh, and the you line. plug it into there? Yeah. yeah, I think that's what it is. But he calls and basically says he's fixed the problem. And then as he climbs down, we hear this motorcycle in the distance, and it gets closer and louder as Spake heads to his vehicle. And he looks up as the motorcycle approaches, and then leaps away just in time as the motorcyclist rears off the road and towards him. And after another near miss, the motorcycle spins around and its headless rider draws a sword and heads directly towards Spake, 
but Spake is able to climb the pole and he gets up there quick enough that he's spared the blade, like it strikes the pole instead. And the driver drives off and Spake looks down and he sees this huge gash in the pole just below his feet. So he got Ooh. just high enough to like yeah. miss getting hit. So lucky, very lucky. Yeah, and he's kind of a big dude too, so he could he could move. So. Yeah, well, he's used to climbing those poles for work, right? So he's probably faster at it than a lot of yeah. people would be. Yeah. So then we're back at the INS office and Kolchak is typing up a story for The Wire. And he gets up and he asks Miss Emily, who's on the phone, if she's found anything. And she's like, not yet. So Kolchak gives his story to The Wire operator and then Vincenzo walks in. And Kolchak asks what he's doing here. He's like, you should be in the hospital with your ulcer. And Tony's like, I've got responsibilities. The doctor let me out. But he gave him this awful, bland, gooey diet. So he basically has to eat like probably really plain things like Mm -hmm. broths and oatmeals and rice, like plain white rice. So he can't eat anything. And then he's like, and I have to drink this stuff. And he pulls this bottle out of the bag and Kolchak reads the label and it's magnesium suspension, mint flavor, which Mm. (laughs) Vincenzo says tastes like eggnog mixed with toothpaste and billiards chalk, which if you've ever had like... I know some of the tums out there. I feel taste kind of like that, so I can totally, I can feel his pain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's like milk of magnesia is what it is. So, yeah, yeah. Basically, I, think, I, think I don't know if that's still around or not. It's old timey stuff, but yeah. I think they do. They sell the bottles of it. It's okay. just most people like take Pepsi AC or something now. Yeah, I mean, you can buy. You can. There's all kinds of uh, just magnesium type of things. Yeah, like yeah, yeah for yeah. your for acid. Your guts. Yeah, if you like to shove sriracha on everything and then wonder why you constantly have acid reflux. Yeah, For or example, if you're having trouble getting stuff out, it also <laughs> works. So, oh, okay, yeah. So Kolchak still is kind of like, well, maybe he's kind of wondering if he should still be at work even with all the stuff. And Tony's like, it's fine, and he takes a dose of his medicine. And he just has to watch his workload and take everything slow and easy. Uh, (laughs) For some reason, because he never learns, he asks Kolchak what he's working on. And Kolchak kind of backpedals and he's like, you should just focus on your managerial duties and not really worry about the news. So, of course, Vincenzo presses, which, dude, just go sit in your office. Don't (laughs) don't ask Kolchak what he's working on. You know that's not going to be good for you. And Kolchak's like basically says the same thing he's like you know you're just gonna get all worked up and mess up your ulcer and he still pushes so Kolchak relents and he says he's still working on the murder of the cab driver and Vincenzo's like what wire and Kolchak holds up his hand and is like calm down and he takes a deep breath and he tells Kolchak it seems like a routine homicide but if Kolchak can tell him otherwise that's fine then he takes another deep breath and he waits and he's like pretending to be calm and Kolchak's like, okay. And he takes his own deep breath. And he's like, Joe Morton was wearing a bulletproof vest that was cut into shredded wheat with a sword. And, you know, Tony's like, well, that's interesting. Velocity of force by a motorcycle. It's grim. It's real. I like it. And Kolchak's kind of like, you do? And Vincenzo does. And Kolchak says, well, the only problem is that's not real. He talked to crash experts who said it would be impossible to inflict that kind of damage with the sword, no matter how fast the bike was going. 
And Vincenzo likes that even better. And Kolchak is very surprised. He's like, oh, okay. And Vincenzo recites the headline, police takes Phil on motorcycle murder. Release incorrect cause of death. And he smiles and he gives Kolchak a wink and a chuckle and kind of like a half finger gun thing. And he says, Carl, when you're good, you're very good. And then he heads into his office. So Kolchak kind of like snaps out of his bewilderment and like calls after him. But it was a motorcycle and it was a sword. Like it not that the police didn't get it wrong, right? It's just it's impossible. And the bike hasn't been seen on this earth, a little hyperbole Kolchak, but whatever, for 20 years. And whoever or whatever was swinging that sword had to have superhuman strength. So Tony walks over to his medicine, which he'd left over by the <laughs> wire for some reason, he takes another dose. And Kolchak's like, hey, you need to follow your prescription. You got to take care of that also, right? And then Kolchak also tells him that an eyewitness, Norman Cahill, a taxi dispatcher, has disappeared. And he and Miss Emily have been trying to track him down. And he thinks the police have him sequestered. He's like, why? And then Jensen was like, well, don't keep me in suspense. And Kolchak is like, we're in suspension, right? <laughs> and he like, there's a little flick of his hand and smacks Vincenzo in the stomach. And then he's like, oh, and grabs his stomach. And Kolchak's like, oh, my God, what did I do? Right? No. But then Miss Emily says that she's found Cahill. He's been confined to a psychiatric ward at Mercy General, room 312. So Kolchak is like, aha, the psychiatric ward. That dispatcher saw something. And Vincenzo says when he sees him, to have him dispatch a cab here because he is ready to go home. And then he heads to his office <laughs> and he's like, oh, like, you know, hold the stomach. And yeah. Like, yeah. Poor Vincenzo. Yeah. Bewildered Kolchak was amazing in the scene, though. Just like the whole, like, okay, I'm going to tell you. And then he's like, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Kolchak's like, you do? That was great. Yeah, it was pretty good. It's a good exchange. <laughs> I mean, their exchanges are always pretty great. This one's pretty good, though. It's, yeah. And I've had an ulcer, and that is, it's so painful. Like, it is one of the most painful, awful things. So I totally feel bad for Vincenzo. <laughs> yeah. mm. Wow. That was when I was in college and living on orange juice and coffee. Don't do that, kids. Don't do and that. And you don't have a cold check to aggravate it. Yeah. No, I just had algebra and stress that's probably what made you better was algebra algebra is <laughs> a wonder it's a joy yeah i did not pass <laughs> algebra that year <laughs> so then we're at mercy general and kolchek manages to get past a nurse by claiming to be a police sketch artist and it seems legit like he knows the room number he knows all the names captain jonas norman cahill but she still wants to see some id so he has to really pour it on and starts going in on about her bone structure and her complexion, and like poses her face to like look at it in the light and talks about the chis guru and all this kind of stuff. And then he's like, oh, the time. Tell you what, when I come back, you and I can discuss having a sitting. And then he like runs off and goes to the room. So I had to like do some extra work to get through that one. Yeah. And in the room, there's three men in beds. So each have their own bed. And Cahill is in the third bed. The guy in the second bed thinks Kolchak is his uncle Ned, despite the fact that he's probably older than Kolchak is. But Kolchak apologizes to his nephew without missing a beat. He's like, oh, sorry, nephew. And then the guy in the first bed warns Kolchak a spider's about to drop down on him from the ceiling. So Kolchak like, looks up and then like, doesn't see anything and looks down, see if it already fell on the ground. And the dude's like, that was no spider. That was my wife. And then he starts laughing. And then the second man also starts laughing. 
And then Kolchak kind of laughs too. And then he turns to Cahill, who isn't laughing, and who also is the only of the three patients actually like strapped into his bed. So he's got like a blanket over him and then he's like totally strapped down. Can't get out of the bed. Probably because he's like, I'm not crazy. I want to leave. Anyway, so Kolchak introduces himself, INS. So he gives his real credentials. And he says he was at the garage yesterday. And Cahill's like, then you must have seen it too. And Kolchak's like, I didn't, but I know that you did. Tell me what you saw. And so he's like, a headless guy on a motorcycle swinging a sword. <laughs> he's like, no one will believe me. And Kolchak is kind of like, are you sure it wasn't the light or like how fast the bike was moving? And Cahill actually kind of starts to get angry. And Kolchak's like, hey, hey, you need to calm, calm down. Like, because he's starting to raise his voice, right? So he doesn't want to draw attention, bring the nurses in the room. And he's like, you know, I, I believe you, I believe, but I need you to go through it like piece by piece for me, okay? Take it, you know, step by step. So Cahill tells him what happened and how the headless rider killed Joe Morton and that he was riding one of those bikes that Joe used to ride around like on 20 years ago. Like Joe used to talk about how he like rode motorcycles and kind of stuff. And then Kolchak's eyes light up because 20-year-old motorcycle, right? And he asked him if Joe Morton used to be in a motorcycle club. But before Cahill can answer, the nurse comes in and she's got an orderly with her and she tells Kolchak to leave. And so he does. And then the guy in the first bed tells the nurse that Kolchak almost stepped on his wife and he starts laughing again. And then she kind of just has like this super nervous smile on her face. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it closes the door and leaves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Those poor guys. <laughs> Psychiatric care is never awesome on television. No. Never. Never, no. never. So Kolchak enters the Chicago police headquarters and he heads straight for Captain Jonas's office. And through his blinds, Jonas sees Kolchak enter the squad room and he grimaces and he's like, oh, great. And he meets Kolchak at the door and he tells Kolchak to save the wear and tear on his ears. He's not releasing any information on the Morton homicide, period. And he slams the door in Kolchak's face and he goes back to his desk. And after like a second, Kolchak opens the door and is like, Okay, I just came to ask if you notified the board of directors. And Jonas is like, what board of directors? And he says, Morton Mining and Manufacturer. And then Kolchak realizes Jonas doesn't know what that is. So he closes the door and he removes his hat and he sits across from Jonas and he leans in and he's like, Joseph Morton was the heir to the entire Copper Dynasty. And Jonas is like, uh, and Kolchak's like, oh boy. And, you know, he's like, he's, he's like, oh, this is going to be trouble. <laughs> oh, boy, you don't. Yeah, I got to fill you in, buddy. So he says that he got a tip and had their financial reporter check it out. Morton was apparently about to inherit the entire dynasty, including a dozen or so holding companies in Utah. And Jonas is like, that's baloney. He was just a punk from Cicero and he had a yellow sheet as long as his arm. And Kolchak's like, he was worth eight million dollars. He ran away as a kid and lived with a family in Cicero, but the Morton family kept tabs on him the whole time. And Jonas is like, so they let him join the Jokers, this biker gang hellbent on mayhem and destruction? In 1956 alone, he was arrested nine times, including aggravated assault and grand theft auto. And Kolchak removes his notepad from his pocket, and he looks like he's reading along as Jonas recites like the list of crimes or whatever, so it looks like Kolchak already has all that information. And finally is like, copper air my ass. And then Kolchak is like, okay, fine. You can handle all those old money types. You obviously don't want to hear anything else from me. And he gets up and leaves. So managed to get some info. Yeah. But I do have some interesting facts about Cicero, Illinois. 
before I get to this, though. So $8 million in 1975 is basically $40.6 million in 2021. Wow. So, yeah. That's a lot of money. Pretty good. Yeah. Cicero, as you expect, it sounds like Cicero is like maybe not the great part of town, right? So it is a suburb of Chicago. It's actually the fourth largest municipal district in Illinois, apparently. But it actually used to be like six times as big when it was originally incorporated. And then it's like shrunk. So it's kind of crazy. But some interesting notes about Cicero is that Al Capone built his criminal empire in Chicago. And then he moved to Cicero to escape the Chicago police. Oh, cool. And then in 1924, the municipal elections were like super violent because like it was gang related to make sure that people voted the way they wanted to vote. You always hear about like Chicago voting. So Cicero was in on that. And then in 1951, in July of 1951, from July 11th to 12th, there was uh, something similar to things we've heard about recently in our history that a lot of people don't know about that people are starting to learn. But a white mob of about 4,000 people like burned this apartment building that one African-American family was living in because they had moved into the like basically all white city and was living there. And so like they just swarmed the place and burned it down. Like Adlai Stevenson, who was like the governor at the time, like had to call in like the National Guard. So yeah. And then there's there was a lot of racial stuff going on there. Yeah. So yeah. And then it's kind of it's kind of had like that revitalization kind of business kind of thing. Um, actually, a lot of Hispanic immigrants have moved into Cicero lately. And so like a lot of the uh, it was it had, it had like a big like Czech and Bohemian population in the past. But now most of the European style restaurants and shops are actually like Spanish themed. Nice. And that kind of thing. So it has like a little small black community there now, too. But yeah. So they had their own like Black Wall Street. I mean, not to the same extent, but like they just totally like 4,000 people was crazy. No, that's to a burn down one apartment amount. building. Because there was one family living there. I mean, the family, like, thankfully, nothing happened to them. They obviously left town and moved. But, yeah, that's insane. Yeah, that's terrifying. Um, so then Jonas is like, uh, he calls him back because Kolchak's leaving, right? And he, But he has that tone of, like, I'm not done with you yet, even though Kolchak was the one talking previously. And he tells Kolchak that Henry Spake, a.k.a. Studs, who is the leader of the Jokers and was Morton's best friend, stabbed a gym teacher when he was 16 he's still a biker and he runs the devil's advocates and they like to run tour buses off the road for fun he's like is that the kind of best friend they let their son have and he tells kolchek that he's pathetic so he obviously realizes that kolchek is making up the story to try to get information on the homicide but he's giving him more information as he does he does yeah i don't yeah he doesn't yeah anyway like realizes but doesn't realize yeah so yeah Kolchak is playing the, the double game here. <laughs> so then Kolchak continues with the charade, right? He's like, who knows about family these days? And he like pulls out his notepad again. He's like looking through it. He's like, Joe and his father, J.J. Um, Morton, they had irreconcilable differences. But his mother, Glenda, she loved the boy and then kept sending him money right up until she died uh, last year. And Jonas is like, mm-hmm, like, still not believing, right? And he's like, did mom let him marry Lila Polito, huh? A high school dropout. Lila and her sister used to ride with the Jokers, real debutantes. And Kolchek is like writing furiously the whole time he's talking. And he's like, oh, well, I knew about uh, Lila, but I'm not Debbie. And then he's like, Coral, Coral. So then he corrects him because Kolchek just like made up a name. So then Kolchek puts away his notepad. And he tells Jonas that he really does have a lot of information. He's impressed. 
And Jonas is like, I don't miss much. And then Coltick is like, you know, we're a lot alike. We should really work together sometime. This Morton mining thing is really going to do wonders for my reporting career. In this case, it's going to like, you're just going to like shooting up the ladder to the top. It's going to be amazing. And then Jonas is like, I don't work with the press. And he gets up and he goes to show Kolchak out. And he says, the question of Joe Morton is not open to outside investigation and that Kolchak will get no help from his office. And they end up shouting at each other in the doorway. And finally, Jonas tells him to get out and to take his rag to Rich's nonsense with him. <laughs> so then we see a woman crying at a funeral home. And Studs is giving her a hug and a kiss on the cheek. And he's like, everything's going to be okay. And he's wearing a sleeveless jean jacket with his name on the patch on the chest, like, you know, a service station worker. And the logo of the Devil's Advocates is on the back. And there are three other gang members with him. And they're leaving as Kolchek enters. And Kolchek sees his name and he, like, asks to speak with him, but he calls him Mr. Spake. And Studs is like, how do you know me? And the other members kind of come around him, you know, like menacingly. And Kolchak nervously says that he saw his name, but Studs is like, it says Studs, not Mr. Spake. And Kolchak's like, well, you're well known and I'm a documentary filmmaker. And Studs, you know, seems a little interested. But then Kolchak makes a mistake and he has to like try and backtrack. And a couple of the gang members kind of threaten Kolchak and Studs tells them to cool it. And then during their exchange, the woman who was crying, whose name is Lila Morton, nay Polito, repeatedly looks over and is like, studs. And she's like gesturing for them to leave because they're like, you know, causing a disturbance. And this is a viewing or a, a wake of some kind. So eventually Kolchak brings it around to this documentary he wants to make comparing bike clubs of the 50s to modern bike clubs. And he mentions Joe Morton was your friend, but he gave up on bikes. And one of them's like, he gave up on everything for a pot belly and a TV set. And another makes a joke about being old and looks at studs who smacks him in the gut. Yeah, because the other gang members are younger than they're not like the original gang members. They're like younger. Dudes. Yeah, a little younger generation. Sorry. And so Kolchak says that Joe Morton was killed by someone riding a 20 year old bike. And he finds that very interesting. You know, speaking of documentary films. Yeah, he says filmically, which I'm not sure is a word. I don't think it so, is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so one of them like, well, if you want good shots, you should have seen the old man last night. And they all laugh. And Lila again, like angrily shushes them. And the other gang members told Kolchak how he sees ghosts and goblins and did bad things when he was young. And he made them go to this old cemetery to make sure someone he buried a long time ago was still buried. Only there was just a big hole and the bodies have been moved to a warehouse. So Studs hits them and they're all like taunting him going ghosts and goblins, ghosts and goblins. And that's when Lila loses it and tells them to leave or she'll call the cops. And so the three younger guys are just done. So they like run away and Studs apologizes. And he's like, he didn't mean any disrespect to her or Joe. And no one understood Buddy Holly like Joe did. And she's just like, Buddy Holly derisively and tells him to get out of here and slides the door closed. And then she apologizes to the other mourners for the disturbance, saying that, oh, those guys are bums. They're always just bums. And then she turns back to the casket. So Kolchak managed to be inside when she closes the doors. And so now she's facing the casket and he slowly approaches her from behind. And he introduces himself, truthfully, you know, Carl Kolchak, INS, Independent News Service. And he gives his condolences and he apologizes for the scene that, you know, just took place. And she's like, they're just animals. And she's like, I can't believe they're a part of my past. So Kolchak kind of puts on the charm a little bit. 
and he gets a smile out of there talking about stuff in the past and you know she kind of smiles and laughs a little bit and then she tells him that she and her sister coral they got into some heavy stuff when they were young and Kolchak is like i know you ran with the jokers and like her face just like boom like goes to stone like she obviously was not expecting him to know that or to say that right and he apologizes he's like there isn't really any better like time for me to do this so i'm just gonna do it and he asks if she knows who would have wanted to kill her husband and would have been riding a 20-year-old motorcycle she tells him she doesn't know and as she tells him she doesn't know she's like removing her earrings and she like places them on the casket which i don't know if that's like a funeral thing or not i don't understand that thing and then she says that they her coral and joe they got out of that a long time ago and Kolchek says one of Stud's gang said something about things not staying buried and asked her if it might be a killer without a head. And she's like, what? So he's like, a killer without a head. And he like does like a little head chopping motion with his hand when she says it. And she's like, well, they're on drugs. I'm not. Who knows what they're talking about? And I don't know what's wrong with you either. So she thinks he's talking crazy. So Kolchek asked why Studs came there. And she's like, to pay his respects. And Kolchik is like, well, yeah, but he looks scared to death. And so do you. And so she asked him to leave her alone. He's like, I don't associate with people like that anymore. Studs came in and he was probably high as a kite and he was babbling. And this whole time she's like getting super upset and crying and says like, I don't have to talk to you. Studs was right. And then Kolchik is like, Studs was right about what? And suddenly she's like, is just not upset at all as if like the whole morning widow thing is like an act and she's like stopped. And then she turns to Kolchak and he's still asking like, was he talking about not talking to someone or keeping things quiet? What was he right about? And she kind of doesn't know what to say. And then suddenly like, you can see like this little light bulb goes off in her head and she's like, buddy Holly. And then she gets super mournful again. And like says when he'd get a few beers in him, he'd put on a buddy Holly record and sing along to it that'll be the day that I die. And then she like throws herself across the coffin and is like weeping and like, Joe, Joe. And Kolchak is kind of like, uh, kind of rolls his eyes, yeah. rolling his eyes. And then he leaves. And then soon as the doors close, when he leaves, she like stops like in mid weep, like, <gasps> and like puts her earrings back in her purse, grabs them off the casket, puts them in her purse, blows her nose and looks around. Cause like there were other people in the room. So they obviously saw what was going on. And then she kind of like says bye to Joe. But we don't actually get to see her leave because then we cut to a sign and it says Cook County Warehouse. Yeah. Yeah. She was definitely over the top for sure. Yeah. Especially that last yeah. part. Oof. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, it was her husband. She was probably sad. Oh, yeah. But I think almost all of that was all performative, honestly, even the stuff like when Studs was there. So, well, yeah, because she was trying to get rid of Studs, you know? So she's like, I'm weeping. Yeah. You need to go because I'm, yeah, yeah, you know, which I get, like, knowing what happens later, it makes sense. But yeah, it's very fake over the top. Like, you know, I noticed she's been in several soap operas too. And I'm like, well, she definitely had practice. <laughs> we'll talk about this in a little bit. But she, in this scene, she doesn't come off very well. No. It doesn't seem like she's, yeah. She does not. Seems like she knows something and is not talking. So in the warehouse, there's an out-of-focus motorcycle in the foreground as we see Kolchak walk up. And the lock on the door has been busted. 
So Kolchak goes in and walks around and it's dark. So the only light is really from the skylight or like the high windows that, you know, warehouses sometimes have. And he peeks around a stack of crates and he sees the night watchman, an older guy with glasses, is in his office drinking from a paper bag and reading a newspaper. And he's got like this small desk lamp that he's reading with. Yeah, got some hooch in that bag. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. A lot of Night Watchmen in this show also drink. So that's. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Good for Kolchek, I guess. Not good for <laughs> people who want their stuff watched at night. Um, <laughs> so then Kolchek sees like something from like a flash from a flashlight moving across some crates. And he realizes Studs is in the warehouse looking for something. And he seems to know what he's looking for. Because he's looking at like the stack of coffin shaped crates that we saw on the forklift. And he's kind of like, you know, looking down the list. Cause like in front of all the crates, there's like lists of names. So they know who is, you know, where. As they dug up bodies, they put them in some kind of order so they can put them back, I'm sure. I'm not put them back, but put them in the new location as directed. But Studs knocks something over while he's looking around. So the guard grabs his flashlight. And he has his hand on his gun and he limps out of his office and he finds studs and he pulls a gun on him and it's inches from studs. And he's like visibly shaking as he tells studs to leave or he'll call the police. And so studs like grabs the gun and pushes it close to the guard's face. And he's like, are you going to shoot me old man? And he pushes the guard back and Kolchak is like watching this whole scene. Yeah. And honestly, it's set when he pushes the old man back, Cause like the old man's still holding the gun. He kind of does that thing almost like a stop punching yourself kind of thing. He like grabs it and like turns it around on the old guy. When he pushes him, it almost sounds like the gun goes off. And you're like, <gasps> but then right after that, he like punches a crate and it sounds the same. It's just like a weird echo in the warehouse. So you're like, Ooh. yeah. And then we see the guard and he's not shot or dead. He's back in his office and he's calling the police and studs continues to look for whatever he's looking for. And then he sees that metal bucket-like container that we saw fall out of the coffin in the opening. And then we hear the droning of a motorcycle. Kolchak looks around. Studs gets up from looking at the container. And the guard comes out of his office. So we get, like, all three of our people in the warehouse, like, hearing this sound and looking out. And then everyone sees the headless motorcycle rider enter the warehouse. And he's got his katana. And Studs is like, hey, man, no. And he turns around, he runs, and he falls which in a way is good because motorcyclist goes right by him. And then he's like, and spins around and he comes in front of the pass. So studs runs and he falls again, which again is good because the sword slices into a stack of boxes that he would have got chopped if he hadn't fallen down. And then third pass studs running and he's conveniently like falls across this like wooden ramp. And the motorcycles all and, like jumps and lands over all these crates. And then it spins around for a fourth pass. So as you said before, he is persistent. Yep. So and then we hear police sirens in the distance because, you know, the guard did call the cops. And the headless rider comes in for his attack. And Studs runs. The guard takes a big old swig from his bottle. And Kolchak is like watching. and But Studs, Studs can't outrun a motorcycle. And we see the sword swing. And we get a freeze frame on it. And you're actually expecting the screen to go black here because uh, there should be a commercial because it's all, it's been like 10 minutes past commercial time, to be honest with you. But instead, we cut to the cops driving in the warehouse and you come to a sideways stop and block the path of escape. And the rider pops the wheelie and that somehow allows him not to like just crash into the side of the car on one wheel. But like it lets him like jump over the car using the car like as a ramp. 
Ghost motorcycles can totally do that, by the way. Oh, yeah. And then Kolchak decides that, like, I should probably leave, too, because there's a bunch of cops coming. So he, like, looks out. <laughs> and then we get our commercial. Yeah. So finally. This commercial break is, like, 10 minutes late. It's crazy. That's funny. So. A lot of action, 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 action. <laughs> it's too much going on for a commercial break. Come on, Locke. Locke is like, action, action. I love action. Locke is on? an action kitty. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So then we're in the INS office and Miss Emily and Ron are eating sandwiches and Vincenzo is watching longingly from his office <laughs> and he comes out and he walks past them and he sees Kolchak eating a hot dog and reading through some reports and he opens the staff refrigerator and he pulls out a bowl and Vincenzo looks inside and we can't see what it is. I'm guessing if he's on some kind of plain diet, it's probably like plain rice or oatmeal or something like, like yogurt that. Yogurt or something. He's talking Maybe about gooey yogurt. stuff, right? And yeah. this is like 1975. So yogurt isn't really like, you know, mainstream kind of. Yeah. So it might be. No. We don't know what it is. Whatever it is, it's not something Vincenzo wants to eat. So he just no. puts it back in the fridge. He's like, no, never mind. And he walks over to a desk and he looks around and then he sits down and he dials a number on the phone. And he tries to be quiet and he's like, hey, Manny, it's Tony Vincenzo. I want a couple of knishes and a side order of bean salad and a dill pickle. And he thanks him and he like rubs his belly. And then <laughs> Kolchak walks over carrying one of those huge archival files like back to his desk. And it's like the size of his desk. And Tony's like, what are you doing? You're trying to flare up my ulcer by messing up the Chronicles archives. And Kolchak tells him not to worry about it. Yeah, he apparently actually stole it from the Chronicle. It's actually another paper's archive, so he, I guess he's not supposed to have it. Yeah. So he tells him not to worry about it and not to ask what he's doing because he'll just get mad. So he looks at this photo that Kolchak has on his desk, and he's like, hey, when you develop this, you cut off the head. And Kolchak has a mouthful of hot dog, and he's like, I didn't cut off his head. That was done 20 years ago. And he shows him the space between the shoulders and the top of the photo where the head should be. And overhearing them, Miss Emily suggests that Carl check out the guillotine exhibition on the French Reign of Terror at the Museum of Science and Industry. And Vincenzo, like, gets kind of fed up and he lectures all three of them about how they're just sitting, gathering their salaries and chatting about guillotines, and headless corpses and stuffing their faces. And like, you know, I mean, I'm sure they all normally eat lunch yeah. at their desks. So I'm sure that's not weird. But Vincenzo storms into his office and Kolchak looks through his archive book and finds what he's looking for. Yeah. Honestly, Miss Emily and Ron sandwiches look like bland as fuck. Like they, there's like white bread with like some like, I don't know, like deli turkey or something on them. And that's, I mean, I think they're open face sandwiches. Like Tony's doctor would probably have been fine if he ate them. They didn't look like super appetizing. I mean, eh. Kolchak's hot dog. Yeah, sure. But yeah, I mean, we're kind of, yeah, who knows? It's just, I'm sure he's probably not supposed to have like, I mean, deli meats kind of one of those things where yeah. if you're on a restrictive diet, you might not be able to eat it. So either way, if he's supposed to be eating really bland food, I'm sure everything looks good. <laughs> yeah. So then Kolchak finds the story he's looking for in the archive. August 22nd, 1956, the decapitated body of Harold Baker, 20 of Cicero, was found today on Route 15 outside of Cicero. Baker 
also known as the sword man and culture's like what the what the sword man right because hey there we go he was a known member of the bishops a local motorcycle gang and he's reading along and then he's like the man's head was not found in the vicinity of the body he's like that's it that's what everyone's looking for so he wolfed down the rest of like this hot dog is like the endless hot dog. I wish he had this hot dog. He's been eating <laughs> he's one it of those forever. big, big Costco yeah, hot dogs like he's that you get for it, like, constantly, and he's still got like <laughs> half of it left. So he finally like he wolfs it down. He grabs all his stuff and he heads out. And Vincenzo sees him leaving. He's like, "Hey, where you, where are you going? Where are you going?" He gets no answer. But then as Kolchak's running out, the waiter from Manny's arrives with a plate of food. So Vincenzo's like trying to like. Like with his vest, like trying to hide it and like gives the waiter the money. He's like, keep the change. And then he takes it, he ducks into his office and he pulls down the shade. <laughs> eat his knishes and bean salad and pickle. The pickle's probably the worst part, honestly, for his ulcer. Oh, but. pickles are so good, though. Oh, they're so but he good. wants a dill pickle, too. Oh, dill pickles aren't the best. I mean, I oh, guess there so are some good. good dill pickles, but yeah, like um, I don't like the the standard i mean i i'll eat the standard ones you buy in the grocery store it's not like i don't like them but like you know you get those really good like gourmet pickles yeah mm, yeah i guess it's like anything else you, you can have good ones you can have bad ones so yeah yeah Quality no i like i not. like a good pickle and then this is yeah. a deli too so i bet they have really good pickles yeah so i guess they're at the i guess they must be like the ground floor of the building they're in or something they're yeah always, i think call, so he's always calling down to manny's for stuff so yeah like in the middle of the night even so yeah yeah they're probably like a 24 hour yeah you can just order up good be good so kolchek left i guess he was heading to the guillotine exhibit i don't know if that's where he was running off to but he decided to go there and this scene i I really cut it down in the notes there's a lot of stuff that goes on and there's banter and all kind of stuff but i kind of cut it down just to get through it it's not a lot the important part is that kolchek gets some information on old wives tales about headless corpses roaming the streets of paris attempting to wreak havoc on those responsible for their beheading after like careless burials that separated or mixed up their heads and bodies. Mm-hmm. And he finds out the only way to resolve the issue, according to these old wives tales was to reunite the head and the body. And Kolchik is like, that's what I needed to know. And yep. he leaves. Yep. So yeah, that gives him information on how to solve the problem. Yes. The guy who's running the exhibit is a character actor. If you see him, you're like, oh, that dude. So watch the episode. You'll know it. There we go. <laughs> so that night, shortly before 10 p.m., Lila Morton's sister, Coral, who used to ride with the Jokers, but now is a respectable housewife, never made it back to her house. Uh-oh. And we see Coral crossing the street after closing up a pizza shop called Domino's Pizza, but not the Domino's Pizza you're thinking of. This is like a small independent shop. And then we hear a motorcycle in the distance. <sighs> and we get a shot of Coral's face as it's illuminated by the headlight. The motorcycle <sighs> roars closer. And then we reverse angle to the headless rider pulling back his sword for a swing that we freeze frame on. And then we hear a thunk. Oh. And we cut to the rider driving away on his motorcycle. Oh, man. I would normally not associate closing down a pizza shop with being a housewife, but... Maybe the family owns it. Maybe. I realized that when we were doing the earlier scene, so like this is, it says Domino's Pizza right in the thing, right? Joe Morton drove for Domino Cab Company. Oh, yeah. Everything's Domino. Everything's Domino based. I guess. Yeah. And I don't know if uh, I didn't look up the actual Domino. Well, I guess 
like what we know as Domino's Pizza. I was like, did they start in Chicago? Maybe, uh, maybe it's like a call, but I don't know. But anyway, maybe it's interesting. But yeah. So Lila is running around and she's trying to stuff way too many clothes into a suitcase. And there's a knock at her door and she's like, wah! And she runs over. She's got clothes in her hands. She's dropping some. And she opens it. And then she makes like this other noise. And it's like, it's you. And then Kolchak is like, no matter where you're going, it won't be far enough. You can't tell she's trying to pack and get you know, the hell out of yeah, Dodge. Exactly. And so she runs back to her suitcase and she's like picking up the drop clothes along the way and tells Kolchak to get out of her house. And he takes off his hat and he says he will. Just as soon as she tells him about Harold Swordman Baker. And she's like, like freezes <laughs> and it's like how do you know his name and he's like i know all about him and then he tells her to tell him who killed him how they killed him and where they buried him which is kind of funny because he's like i know all about him now tell me what i don't know so <laughs> well the fact that he knows the name at all i'm sure is enough for her because that means he knows yeah. something. i mean he about. just the fact that he knew she was in the jokers was like <clears throat> back at the funeral home so yeah yeah so lila's like it was an accident and Kolchak's like, the Joker's accidentally beheaded him. Like, he doesn't really believe that. And she's like, no, not all the Jokers. My sister and I just watched. <laughs> Hashtag yeah. not all Jokers. Yeah. And so apparently Studs, Joe, and Turk Pelletier set up this booby trap to knock the swordman off his bike. So it was meant to just be like a prank, right? He would drive through the like thing and like fall off his bike and everyone would laugh at him. But Studs, that idiot set his end of the wire up too high. So when the sword man went through it, he got decapitated. So Kolchak asks who Turk Pelletier is. And Lila says he was Coral's boyfriend. He was the first one killed by the headless writer 19 years ago. <gasps> and Kolchak's like, there's nothing about Turk Pelletier in the papers 19 years ago. And Lila gets kind of that face, like the real guilt look on her face. And she's like, we buried him secretly. And then she explains that he used to carry around the sword man's head in this canister like a trophy, which is pretty gross, actually. And then she's like, you know, those were the days. Mm, okay, sure. Your friends carry yeah. around your other friends. Like, accidentally we were young. We were crazy. We carried around heads as trophies. Huh, you, yeah. know. you know, as you do. Yep. And Studs was the one who figured out they had to bury the head with the body after Turk was killed. So he went to the graveyard and he dug up Baker's body and he put the head with it and he buried it back up and everything was fine. And Kolchak's like, until it wasn't. And then the sound of a motorcycle outside gets louder <clears throat> and louder. And you think he's going to come through, like crashing through the windows. But then the sound kind of recedes and there's a knock at the door. And so Lila's like, she asked Kolchak if he'll get it because she doesn't want to answer the door. And to be fair, I don't blame her. Uh, if there's a headless ghost after you, not answering the door is like tip number seven on the list of things to do. And so Kolchak reluctantly agrees. So Kolchak opens the door and it's Captain Jonas. Oh, oh my God. Captain Jonas and a patrolman. So scary. And they are there to take Lila into custody and ask her some questions about the murder of Harold Baker. And for her own protection, of course, right? And Kolchak says that Baker's murder is old news. He's out there chopping off heads while his is somewhere in the Cook County warehouse. And they need to go find it. And Jonas says, everyone knows that Kolchak has lost his mind. And it's obvious, though weird, that some biker, probably under the influence of drugs, 
has taken into his head to avenge Harold Baker. And then he spins around. He's like, and he's wearing a costume. He's not headless. And Kolchak is like, it's not a costume. And no one has taken it into their head because he doesn't have a head. Kolchak says they need to find Harold Baker's head. So Jonas asks if he's supposed to go into some barn full of bones and find a skull and play pin the head on the stump. He's like, is that what you think police do? And Kolchak is like, I've given up on trying to figure out what police do. He's like, <laughs> I just know what has to be done. Right. And he looks at Lila and she's like, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And then Jonas tells her, he's like, you're just upset. No, thinks this madman's morbid macabre babbling. And then Kolchak is like babbling. And he starts to leave. He gets mad. He's like leaving. And he's like, you're supposed to be the youngest and smartest captain on the force. But you aren't even fit to be the captain of a dancing troupe. And then he walks by and he's like, suck your gut in to the patrolman standing there. And like, he does. He sucks his gut in. And then he slams the door. Goes out. It's a commercial. Kolchak's pissed. Had enough of Captain Jonas. Yeah. Hmm. I think Captain Jonas gets on his nerves more than a uh, Mad Dog Siska does. Yeah, yeah. I think because he can play Mad Dog Siska, probably. Like they have a thing. Yeah. Whereas Jonas is just a dick. So, yeah. I actually found Lila likable in this scene, despite not, not finding her likable really at all in the last scene. I don't know if it's like her hair, because she's got like she's got big hair in this scene, really big hair. Um, it could just be the fact that she's not like, pretending that she's mourning a lot too. So, and also, like, you know, she looks kind of hot in this scene. So, kind of <laughs> like that makes you more likable. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that. So, I was also totally getting this vibe in the funeral home with some of the way she was acting. And this scene totally nailed it. She's like doing like Lucille Ball. Like, I love Lucy, Lucille Ball, like with the wah and that kind of thing. She's kind of doing like a Lucille Ball thing. Um, which, if you've ever watched any Lucille Ball stuff like from the 1930s, like pre I Love Lucy, Especially like the 1934 short Three Little Pigskins from the Three Stooges. Lucille Ball is freaking hot. Oh my God. She is. Mm, yeah. Anyway. So um, Lila's totally giving off uh, Lucille Ball vibes in the scene. Also, true fact, just like Dana Scully, um, Lucille Ball was not actually a redhead. Although, unlike Gillian Anderson, she's not a blonde either. She was actually a natural brunette and bleached her hair blonde before she decided to go the red route. So. Mm -hmm. Not even a ginger. At least Jillian Anderson is still a ginger. She's like a blonde ginger. Not that all blondes are gingers, but Jillian Anderson is definitely like a blonde ginger. So anyway, I should probably say, so Lila is played by Sharon Farrell. So I'm not totally objectifying her. She was actually born on Christmas Eve, 1940 in Sioux City, Iowa. Uh, my wife's sister was also born on Christmas Eve hmm. in uh, 1970. So like 30 years later. Anyway, so she's playing her age here. And she's 18 years younger than Darren McGavin. She actually started her career as a ballerina and then traveling with the American Ballet Company. She ended up in New York and then started doing some acting. She's been in a lot of stuff, but I'm only going to mention three things because they kind of link to other things we've discussed. So chronologically, she was in an episode of My Favorite Martian in 1963 with future David Bruce Banner, Bill Bixby from The Incredible Hulk. She was in an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man in 1974. And I think I discussed how Darren McGavin ties into that probably in way too much detail previously. And then finally, for us, but not for her, because she did continue on after this, she was in the 1980 film, The Stuntman. Tori, does that name ring a bell to you? No. It doesn't. Okay, so aside from like The Six Million Dollar Man and Lee Majors being in The Fall Guy, where he played Stuntman, right? 
but that's not what I'm talking about. The stuntman starred Steve Railsback, who played Dwayne Barry in <laughs> season two, episode five. Dwayne Barry, my favorite episode of season two. Nice. Yeah, nice. So she was she was in that movie with him. She actually had a pretty decent role, it looks like too. I haven't I still haven't got around to seeing that movie. I want to go see it now, especially because he was so good in Dwayne Barry. But yeah, yeah. So based on the credits, it looks like she had a pretty decent size role in that one. So but she's been in a lot of stuff. Yeah. She was also like later in the young and the restless and stuff. Like I said, she did some soap opera acting. So yeah, she played like the mom and like can't buy me love from 1987 or something like that too. Like, like well, that's like one of her top credits when you look on IMDb, like they she's known for da, 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 da. I'm like, I haven't seen that movie. I don't know. But yeah. She's also on the night of the comet from 1984, I believe. Yeah. I might have seen that. Sounds familiar. I don't know. Maybe not. Anyway, so Kolchak enters the warehouse and he's looking around and it's much darker and the crates are covered by these heavy black tarps, probably to keep people from messing around. I don't know. And while he's looking around, he knocks over a pallet that had been leaning against like this tarp section and the noise alerts the guard. And it's a different guard than last time. And he's like reading newspaper comics, which newspaper comics are awesome. And he's not drinking. Yeah. So upon hearing the noise, he immediately picks up the phone. But instead of calling the police, he calls the supervisor and he says, it's happening again. Something is in there. And he doesn't care about the extra money. He's leaving. So clearly, to get people (laughs) to work this job, they have like offered some kind of incentive pay. And it's not enough to deal with headless ghosts, which to be fair, you would need a pretty high level of incentive pay for me to deal with a headless ghost. Yeah, and I'm guessing the tarps, yeah, like you say, I guess maybe because people were messing with them, but like none of them had tarps on them in the previous scene. Yeah, or maybe they're getting ready to move them to wherever they're going to be, like the new cemetery location or whatever. So maybe they're preparing that. I don't know. So Kolchak continues to look around and the names are written on the tarps, like which bodies are under them. So Kolchak finds a stack that says Baker and he throws back the tarp and he finds the busted coffin and through the open side he like shines his light but he doesn't find a headless corpse a headless skeleton there's just nothing in there it's totally empty which for Kolchak's sake is probably good because a body that's been every 20 years is not going to be in happy shape i was really wanting to see a headless body though honestly yeah so he continues to search the warehouse and eventually he comes across this bucket looking canister that we saw fall out of the coffin in the opening and he pries off the lid and he finds a skull and probably not a pleasant odor because he closes it back up pretty quickly, which again. Yeah, yeah. he's like, whoa. Like, yeah. Although at a certain point, once it's skeletonized, there's not going to be an odor, but there might be some putrefaction and some flesh left in there. So well, I, I would think too, like if it's been sealed all that time and it did skeletonize, yeah. there could be like some gross liquid in the bottom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, oh, oh yeah. God. Oh, okay. I don't want to think about that. <laughs> so anyway, oh. Makes me think of like bodies and barrels. And that's just a track I don't want my brain on right now. So anyway, we hear a motorcycle and we see the rider approaching sword in hand. <gasps> so then Coltec is like, hey, wait a minute. I had nothing to do with it. And he like dodges the first pass. does like a slide to the ground and you know, the sword goes over him. And then on the second pass, he like ducks between the stack of crates. So the driver goes by and then the headless rider is kind of sitting there and he's like, revving his engine for number three Kolchik just stands in the middle of the clearing stands his ground and as the motorcycle driver like races forward Kolchik opens the canister and pulls out the skull just 
oh, hurls it at the guy on the motorcycle. And the impact hits him. Boom, he flies back off the motorcycle. And then we hear this horrendous crash. And then we see Kolchak sneakers as he's approaching the wreckage of the motorcycle. And there's a complete skeleton with its skull lying atop all the motorcycle parts that are all strewn all over the place. Kolchak walks away and it's a commercial. Then we come back and Kolchak is sitting at his desk with his trusty recorder. And then we get his closing monologue. He says, there's an old simple axiom about the dead. Don't disturb them. Not for any reason at all. Well, I decided to overlook that. And so I was almost beheaded by a phantom sword. Vincenzo refused to even discuss publishing my story. He didn't even look at the pictures, but the headless writer is at rest now. All the bones are together in one place, in one coffin. As for those members of the Joker's Motorcycle Club, I mean, those that are left, of course, well, maybe they've suffered enough. Three of them died violently, and the others will carry the nightmare of the Headless Rider with them to their silent graves. And incidentally, so will Captain Jonas, formerly of Homicide, now Sergeant Jonas of Traffic Control. You see, he's in charge of towing away parked cars. <laughs> And you can just hear the smile in those words. Yeah, it's the little victories, you know. And then we get the end credit sequence because it's over. Can't get your editor boss to publish your story about the headless motorcycle rider killer. But at least you know that the captain who wouldn't work with you is stuck working on traffic duty. Yep. Glorified meter cop now. Yep. 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 So he does say that three of the Jokers died violently. I was like, Coral doesn't count. But maybe he's referring to like this because we had Turk died 19 years ago, right? And then it was Joe and then it was Studs and then it was Coral. So maybe he's just referring to the three recent ones. That would kind of make more sense. I think so. Yeah, I think Turk yeah. isn't being counted in there, although he did yeah. have a fourth victim. It was just so yeah. long ago that I think it's not really being counted. I did find be like so emphasized the fact that it was like a 20 year old motorcycle and like, oh, my God, a 20 year old motorcycle. That's not going to be anything you could possibly ride. It's like, I mean, especially now, I mean, time has progressed. Right. But like people are driving around like 50 year old classic cars and 50 year old classic motorcycles. And they were doing it back then, too. I mean, I guess it's perspective because like in this series, Kolchak's car is like 10 years old. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like a 1964 everyone- Mustang. It's really sweet. Yeah, and that's the thing. We're like, that's a really sweet Mustang. Uh-huh. But everyone in the show thinks of it like as a piece of junk. Right. Well, it's because, like 10 years old. Yeah. I and mean, so, it's like now, like if you have a 10-year-old Honda Civic that's been put through the ringer, you know, people are going to be like, oh, it's kind of, it's still driving fine. But yeah, it's not a swanky car. It looks kind of old and out of place. Well, and also and 50 years from now, people aren't going to be like, oh, <laughs> Honda Civic. I mean, certain cars do, you know, but it's just kind of weird. It's like a perspective thing, I guess. I mean, I still prefer yeah. Camaro from the Night Stalker movie, but mm-hmm. so it's just really weird because especially because in the next episode, in the very beginning of the next episode, we're going to see some dude driving like a 1958, 59. I'm not actually sure which year it was. I couldn't narrow it down, but like a 58, 59 Corvette that is clearly played as like a sign of privilege and prestige and stuff. Like it's a mm-hmm. fancy car. And yet like, Kolchak's 10 year old yeah. what we would now call a classic car is like oh, that hunk of junk that Kolchak drives yeah so, it's just kind of weird but yeah i was like 20 year old what's wrong with it? like a 20 year motorcycle that's fine like, i mean still, maybe they didn't it, last fine. as long back then i don't know i don't know but yeah, it just seemed weird they were just totally playing up the whole and like 
I mean, obviously, because like the younger gang members are younger. That's why I called them younger gang members, right? They're younger. But like, like you know, Joe Morton is like 36, right? Because they're like, it's only been like 20 years. They were all teenagers. So like, those guys are talking about how like Studs is an old man, but he's, he's like 36. You know? I know. I mean, he's like 36, 37. He's around my age. Where yeah. So it's like you feel yeah. really old, but really you're not that old. But then again, you know, they're, they're the young punks. So of course right. he's the old man, whatever. Yeah. It's but when you're of... like 18, 40 seems like a really long time away. It's a lot of weird. Cause like, and we talked about this before, cause like Darren McGavin is like 51 at this point when he's doing these episodes. So it's just kind of strange. Like the weird, the weird age action that goes on. So. You got anything else? Nope, that's it. Or anything at all, I guess. I'm the one who did all the freaking talking. Jeez, Tori. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a good episode that you know, I like I like the reveal that the guy was accidentally killed in this stupid prank. Like, I think that's a good twist on it because it like explains and then that one of the, one of the dumbasses who like was part of the prank is like carrying his head around. Like, of course this guy's gonna be pissed and come back. Like Come on, you're just trying to make ghosts now. Yeah, and I was I was trying to figure out what the prank was. Like you said, like he held up the wire too high. I don't know that it was a wire. I'm guessing wire it would had still mess to you be. up. But like, would it be? I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I was thinking like it was like a like a plank. But then I'm also like thinking like there were three of them, and so why would it take three people to hold up? Or just I don't know. Like I don't know yeah. what it was, but something. Anyway, yeah. I guess I, mean, I was like picturing would, some kind of wire where they were gonna like. Yeah, I mean, a wire would make no sense because like, it hit you like right below the helmet, right? So it would like get yeah. you like between the vertebrae and off of your head, kind of thing. And like, I would still do some major damage to you though, like it hit you in the chest or something, or like your arms. Yeah, like, still, I mean, I'm not saying it was up. a smart prank, right? It wasn't. No, well, obviously, very smart. Wasn't anyway, well yeah, it was not a well planned prank, and then you know. Yeah, and I like the reveal that they also buried the other guy when he was killed with the headless writer because they had no way to explain that. So, like, I feel like that's really interesting, right? Because you, you're you in that situation. What are you going to do? You're not going to tell the police that this headless yeah. motorcycle, like this guy that you killed accidentally a year ago, has come back from the dead to seek his revenge. Anyway. Yeah, so he's just like a missing person, I guess. Yeah, so I guess he just isn't registered. Yeah, anyway, I thought that was really good. I thought that was clever. I like the plot of this one a lot. I thought it was entertaining. It's one of my like more favorite of the recent cold checks we've watched. I've really enjoyed it, but I don't have a lot to say about it. I just thought it worked really well. So, and I love Vincenzo struggling with his ulcer. Like he's <laughs> Vincenzo's my favorite character, like in this show. So yeah. I relate to him on a you deep level. Like and I mean, obviously, I'm I'm more of a cold check, but you know, yeah. No, see, that's just... <laughs> I think I think that's why this podcast works so well. Explains a lot about us, though. Vincenzo. I'm a cold check, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I get it. I think he's great. And so, yeah, this whole episode was really good. Well, what would you rate it, right? Because we do rate these. Yeah. It's been 12 we weeks. I almost forgot that we do rate these. <laughs> I know. I wasn't sure. I couldn't remember. Um, the audience, people listening are going to be like, what's wrong with you guys? What are they talking about? This was like a week ago. You guys have like, you're so old. You don't remember anything. Oh, my God. Not that old. Not that Why old your voice yet. is so different? Yeah. No, because we're. Our recording schedule is very different than the release schedule. Yeah, so. I may have actually gotten my new. Did I? I don't remember when I got my new mic, but yeah, I, oh, I think I had it by the time we were doing that. But anyway, yeah, yeah. So I think I'm going to give this one an eight. I thought it was really mm-hmm. solid. I enjoyed it a lot. I liked the story, and it, I thought the story was well written. It was well put together. Like I can definitely see why these guys who came up with this premise like definitely went on to do other things. I think it's a good premise. It's interesting. It makes a lot of sense. I didn't have any issues with it. And, you know, 
Tortured Vincenzo is one of my favorites. So, you know, gotta love right. it. Well, well, I was going to go with a seven, but man, I can't have Tori rating it. Coltech episodes higher than me, so I'm gonna go with an eight too. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was it was good. I like the premise. Like and like I said at the beginning, like like the the costume isn't great, but we don't we don't really see it that often, right? And you know, like I can forgive stuff like that if everything else works really well. I think with Dodd Com, part of the why it didn't work is because that episode was also just like weird and it had some other issues, and then also. Yeah, I think it just well, and also think if the headless motorcycle had been like if he had like 30 minutes of screen time, right? He was there the whole time you had to stare at that costume, it probably would have taken it down a little bit, yeah. But because he just kind of is in and out committing murder and then zooming off into the night, like you don't really have to stare at him for that long, you can kind of just like you know, suspension of disbelief and just move on. You can be like, okay, I do think they could have done a little bit of creative framing. To maybe, I mean, like I said, he's not on the screen that much. So it's not that big a deal. They did, they did some. I think they could have probably done a little bit more. Yeah. Focus more on like the the sword and the arm, and not so much on like maybe give us give us more like from behind shots, and the dude could have like hunched down so his torso didn't look so long. You know, they could have done a few things, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I think part of why he's not in the show as much too is probably because they realize the costume's not that good. So let's get him where we yeah. need him, and then. Well, let's also he doesn't really need to be. On. He's not like killing hundreds and hundreds of people or something. So no, but, you know. yeah, he doesn't yeah. need to be there all the time. He's menacing, and they they get him in there and they get him back out. So yeah, poor Coral. Yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, she wasn't the pretty sister, and then she got her head cut off. So <laughs> messed up. I mean, she wasn't ugly, but she wasn't. You know, oh man, what are you doing? I know, I know. I'm sorry, I can't help it. So, how can't win, man? Can't win anyway. That was Chopper, (laughs) yeah. That was Chopper. So, join us next week, which will actually be taking place in a few minutes as opposed to 12 weeks. Yeah, so time, like I said, for this right now, time is not an invariant, it is super mutable. (laughs) It's a universal invariant. Scully said so. Or and Scully is never us. wrong. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> Let's not go there. Never ever. All right. <laughs> Thanks for supporting us on Patreon. And thank uh, you. And join us next week to talk about another cold check episode. Yeah. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded at Black Cat Studios. Episode production, design, and editing is by Lazian Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz. And The Truth is What We Make of It by The Agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time as we rewatch episode 16 of Kolchek the Night Stalker, Demon in Lace. And try to figure out if, if the, the truth, truth is, is still out there. there.
Yep. So then Molchek. 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 Oh, my God. <laughs> He's Mulder and Kolchek all in one. <laughs> oh, my God. Molchek. All right. That's new. That's a new one. Okay. Episode 15. Molchek. All right. The porn stalker. Okay. 